1: Now you've probably all heard of Stephen Hawking. He died a couple of years ago. He was a brilliant theoretical physicist and cosmologist. Now, to everyone's surprise, in the early '90s, Hawking wrote a book called *The Brief History of Time* that became a record-breaking bestseller. By February '93, it had been on the Sunday Times uh, bestseller list for 205 weeks, and it had been translated into 33 languages. Why was it so popular? Because Hawking was explaining the most complex concepts and ideas of physics like space, time, black holes, planets, stars, and gravity. Trying to explain them all to the ordinary average Joe so that even you and I could better understand how our planet was created, where it came from, where it's going. The last sentence of the book was the most famous. And actually, it was nearly cut from the book. But here's here's what it said. And it became very, very well known. Hawking wrote, if we discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists and ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we should know the mind of God. To know the mind of God. That's what he longed for. What a thought that is. To think about the vastness of the cosmos that we inhabit. We're only just beginning to understand that, aren't we? How vast the universe is. And it's expanding and it's greatness and it's glory. Even our own world is overwhelming to us. To think that the being who created all of that and sustains all of it from moment to moment, to think that we could understand the mind of God we who were born yesterday, alive today, and die tomorrow. But friends, what we find here in Philippians chapter 2 is that we actually do know the mind of God because God has revealed it to us. This passage that Namdi just read is an absolutely extraordinary thing. It gives us insight into the mind of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. It unfolds his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, very briefly and in some incredibly profound ways. Look at verse five, though. It says, um, have the same mindset in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A more literal translation would be this. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mindset, the attitude of Jesus that's the point here. This passage doesn't stand alone. It may be that in your Bible it's printed as a, like a poem or a, or a hymn. And that's a, been a popular view in scholars and scholarship for the last 120 years, that it's, it was actually a kind of hymn or poem that's been put into the letter by Paul. Now, whether it is or isn't, it still doesn't stand alone. We must read it as part of Paul's argument. Because, remember, from last week, Paul is urging this church, a real-life church, to stand firm against the external opposition that they're facing and to stand together against internal divisions. And in verses one to four of this chapter, he's urged them to be like minded, to be loving, to be unified in spirit and mind, to shun all selfish ambition and conceit and in humility, to value other people above themselves, to look and care for the interests of others, not for their own interests, And he's been all this encouragement. And now he shows us how to do it. And the way to do it is have the mindset of Jesus. Have the attitude of Jesus Christ. So very briefly, he tells the story of Jesus. It can be summed up in three words. Incarnation, humiliation and exaltation. Three long words, incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation. Firstly, incarnation. The word means in the flesh, embodied in flesh, incarnate. Now, that word doesn't occur in the passage that we just read, but it is a really good summary word of what the passage teaches and has been regarded as, as such But for hundreds of years. Christians have felt this is one of the great passages on the incarnation of Jesus that God became man look at verse 6 It says some absolutely remarkable things verse 6 says who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage Jesus was in very nature God it was the essence of who he was that Jesus was God and if we have any doubt about what that means we do understand the next phrase he had equality with God he was equal with God in every way he shared all the things about God that make God God Jesus had them God never had a beginning neither did Jesus God will never end neither will Jesus God rules the entire universe Jesus does God created the world Jesus created the world Jesus had equality with God. This is very nature. Now, just hold on a moment, because if you've been around church for a while, this is familiar. But just think about how stunning it was to write this down. Because when this letter was written, probably in the 60s, not the 1960s, the 60s, there were plenty of people who who were still alive who had known Jesus, who had walked around with Jesus, who'd sat with Jesus, eaten with Jesus, knew him well. He was born into a human family. They knew his mum. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. He uh, worked a job. He learned a trade. He was a carpenter. When he cut, he bled. When he got hungry, he got tired, he laughed, he wept. He slept. He woke up. Jesus was fully human. And yet this... Human being, this very human person, says Paul, was actually God who has existed throughout all time and never had a beginning. Now, to the Jewish people, the religious Jews, this was a shocking claim for a good Jew to make because their core of their faith was built on the statement known as the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish monotheism there's only one God and does not share his glory and Paul does not depart from that for a moment he doesn't depart from the Jewish monotheism he deepens it he says yes God is one he is actually three in one father son and spirit and the eternal son became flesh he became human. Notice the repetition of that phrase, in very nature, it's repeated in the next verse, in verse 7. You remember, he was Jesus was in very nature God. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So in, he became in very nature a human being. So the eternal son of God didn't stop being God for a while. Made himself nothing doesn't mean he sort of emptied out all the God qualities and, and put it on pause. It means that he made himself of no importance. He made himself of no account. And he joined himself to become a human. He became of the very nature in human likeness. But he was still God. And this incarnation is the grand miracle, according to the great writer C.S. Lewis. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this, or results from this. Because if we struggled with the idea that Jesus took five loaves and a couple of fish and fed 5,000 people in the wilderness, we won't struggle with that if we understand that Jesus was God incarnate. If we struggle with the idea that Jesus could literally go to a tomb ask for the, door, the stone to be rolled away and call out to his friend Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus has already been dead for several days. And Lazarus would emerge, stumbling from the tomb, alive and, and restored to, to health. We would th- think of that as a kind of fable or a myth, unless we acknowledge that Jesus was God himself. Every other miracle actually depends on the Incarnation. So th- that, what that means is, let's just try and get our heads around it for a moment. The God who created the universe, who sustains the entire cosmos from moment to moment, and it may, scientists now think, be billions of years old, that God came down into our, the womb of a virgin and joined himself to an unfertilized egg in the darkness and took our nature to himself forever. Jesus hasn't shucked off his human nature now and gone back to being some sort of spirit. He is eternally a God-man, incarnation. Charles Wesley, great hymn writer, put it into poetry like this, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine, the incarnate deity, our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man contracted to a span our god became an embryo incomprehensibly made man that's the first thing we learn here about jesus christ he was deity god incarnate secondly we learn what the our deity our god did with his greatness and that is humiliation humiliation the second point, humiliation, he, he condescended, he came down, he humbled himself. And here we are now seeing the mind of God at work. Remember, it's is all about having this attitude and this mind. Uh, here we see what how God thinks, how Jesus thinks about his greatness. Verse 6 says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And the language underneath speaks of something that you could rightfully claim as yours. You have, your, you have rights to it, but you could use it for your own advantage, but you choose not to. Jesus chose not to use his equality with God for his own advantage, to serve himself. What did he do instead? Verse 7, he took the very nature of a slave. And you're saying, it, it doesn't say slave in my Bible, it says servant. Well, slave is a better translation here because a servant in our culture is someone who has a paid job they they work hours and they go home and they have human rights whereas a slave in the ancient world wasn't paid didn't get to quit or go home and they lacked what we would regard as basic human rights it says here that jesus god incarnate became a slave the lowest rung of society the creator Took on our full humanity, but having done it, he went further. He humbled himself to become a slave. But listen to what it says next in verse 8 he went even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And here we're plumbing depths that are absolutely extraordinary if we know anything about the ancient world of that time. This was Jesus' humiliation because the cross was uh, an unspeakably cruel torture instrument that the Romans reserved for the worst criminals, the scum of society. It was very, very rare for a Roman citizen to be executed using the cross. It would be reserved for only the worst traitors, the treasons against the state, and usually it was slaves and uh, outlaws who would be crucified. It was a terrible, terrible way to die, not just because of the torment that people went through on the cross, but because it... Utterly exposed them to shame and disgrace and ended their name. That was Jesus' humiliation. Not just to come down from God to being a man, but to become the lowest rung of society. Jesus was homeless for several years. And then to be crucified, to be obedient to death on a cross. That was what Jesus considered it was worthwhile for him to do with his greatness. That's the mind of Christ. The theologian Gary Williams has put it very powerfully. I have used this before, Christchurch Church friends, but hear this again. Jesus Christ came all the way down. He came from a great height. As the eternal Son of God, he had lived for all eternity with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He was beyond time and space. And he stooped down. He became a man. He did not exploit his glory, but concealed it within his humanity. But he did not stop there. He stooped still lower to death, even death on a cross. Crucifixion was a punishment for slaves, not citizens. But the eternal Son of God took for himself our humanity and died upon a slave's cross. This was his humiliation, down from eternity to time, down from the heavens to the earth, down to humanity, down to the death of a slave. And he came with resolve. He set his face to Jerusalem. He stopped Peter using his sword against the men who came to arrest him. He refused to defend himself against his prosecutors. He restrained his power, not calling on angels to help him. The road to the cross was no accident. Suffering was not something that happened to Jesus. It was something he did. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. His death was not his failure. He was not a victim. He didn't come to share our victimhood. His death had a purpose. He came to lift and carry and bear our sins far away, their guilt and their punishment. And he did it by drinking down the cup of God's righteous anger to the very dregs. Ponder this amazing thing with me, that the one who was had equality with God was humiliated to such an extent because... His equality with God led him to view his status, not as a matter of privilege, but as something that he could give away unselfishly. If you look at the incarnate son of God dying on the cross, think this thought. This is the true meaning of who God is. Our God is the God of self-giving love. just think about that for a moment. I've been a Christian for many years. I've only seen this clearly this week. You know, when God created the universe and the world and then human beings and we fell and Jesus eventually comes to save us, it's not as if Jesus is somehow plan B and he just has to sort of embarrassingly stop being God for a while, sort out the humans and then get back on with the job. This is actually the essence of who God is, is that in his heart, God is self-giving love. You look at the cross and you see the true meaning of God, his mind. Extraordinary. Incarnation, humiliation, and then thirdly, finally, exaltation. Because it doesn't end there, as we read. God the Father was pleased with the selfless sacrifice of Jesus, and he raised him from the dead, never to die again. And so we turn from humiliation to exaltation. Read again verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God gives him Exalts him to the highest place, the place of authority that he's on the throne of the universe and gives him the name. Now, what is the name? Actually, people aren't uh, in agreement on this. Many readers think that the name is Jesus, which in its original form means God saves. uh, The name that is above every name and certainly Jesus name is above every name. But most scholars conclude that actually the name that God has given him on his resurrection is Lord He is now the Lord, Jesus Christ, Uh, because that word Lord is added in verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. They will. Everyone will acknowledge that. And every knee. And it says, you know, above the earth, on the earth, under the earth to to emphasize the, the, the universality of this. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and bow before him. Now, this is this is both joyful and somber at the same time because if you are a christian believer someone who has bet their life on following jesus whatever happens to you in life whatever happens to you you know that one day jesus christ will raise you from the dead and you will bow before him as a glad and willing brother or sister a son or daughter of the lord and you'll hear his voice saying come home welcome home good and faithful servant you will bow the knee with willing gladness. It's a wonderful promise. But it's also sombre because the other, other knees will bow who didn't bow to him in their lifetime. They opposed his rule, they ignored him, they neglected him, they despised him. And they will bow too, but with deep sorrow and bitter regret because it will be too late to change course at that point and they will be consigned to a lost eternity. Shut away from the source of life and goodness and beauty and joy. The Bible describes it as a place called hell. We will all bow the knee to Jesus when he returns. And some will do it gladly. Friends, are you ready to hear that name on that day? I speak to people who I'm guessing are at least interested in the Christian faith. You wouldn't be watching a sermon on Sunday morning if you weren't. And I know I speak to many who are following Jesus or the children of those who follow Jesus. Let me ask you, are you ready to hear that name on bow the knee on that day? Does Jesus have your whole heart or are you still on the fence? Now, this exaltation that Jesus gets here isn't some kind of payday that Jesus gets because he humbled himself for a while that he only humbled himself in order to earn some favour with God. God is the one that does all this for Jesus because God is delighted with him. Remember when God spoke in the in the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, he said, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's the favour of God that raises Jesus to the highest place, and it leads ultimately to the glory of God the Father. Jesus even here gives the glory back to the Father. So here we've had, in a breathtaking few minutes, the incarnation, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. Now remember, just remember again, this incredible passage is in a letter written to a very ordinary local church just like ours. To very ordinary local people just like us. Who are trying to get through life and deal with stuff and on top of it, they've got loads of opposition because they're Christians. And on top of that, they've got to deal with other Christians in the churches they don't get on with. There are tensions and relationship issues in their church community. And Paul here is showing us how we can have the mindset to live life like verse 1 to 4. Remember that? Being like-minded, loving, uh, one in spirit, united not doing things out of selfish ambition, conceited, humbling ourselves, seeing others as more important, all those community values, he's now showing us how to do that, how to live like that. And the answer is to imitate Jesus Christ and to meditate on Jesus Christ. It's actually very simple, but you could spend the rest of your life doing it, and we should to imitate Jesus Christ and to meditate on Jesus Christ. And this can be applied to every single area of our lives, can't it? Every single area of our lives. I was thinking about how on earth can I finish this sermon because it applies to everything. How do we apply it? Paul doesn't apply it, he just gives us the principles. And I think what we need to learn to do as believers uh, in our own personal walk with Jesus, but also especially in the horizontal world of relationships with one another, is to apply... Jesus, incarnation, humiliation and exaltation to the way we live and let it transform us. Let me just think about a couple of areas with you as I close. One important area in our our culture is speech. How we use our words. The Bible teaches us that words are very important. Words have the power of life and death. And those who love them will eat their fruit, says the Proverbs. Uh, Words can can have the power of life they can you know encourage somebody and give them good cheer or they can have the power of death they can just crush somebody or bring them low or discourage them or, or hurt them wound them deeply work just words can do that either of those things life and death and i would say let's think about how we use our words in light of jesus incarnation humiliation exaltation so if i by the power of my words could use them for my own advantage what would that look like it would mean uh, speaking it could mean speaking a lot about myself or using my words to to make me look good in front of other people it could be using my humor to put other people down which makes me look smart and clever use of overuse of sarcasm things like that it could make me uh, use my words dishonestly to try and shade the truth in order to get away with things or uh, protect my reputation uh, it could use me, lead me to use my words for gossip to, to to tell stories and things about other people so that they look bad and so that i get social power it could lead me to use my words harshly in criticism of other people unthinking about them or just to be selfish in the way i speak by constantly interrupting people, not listening to them, speaking all the time, filling every conversation with myself. All of that is, in a way, using our speech for our own advantage, isn't it? Every sin of speech actually comes from us using our words for our own advantage. And we're in a storm of this kind of thing in our culture. If you're involved in social media, to any degree, you see how people are using their words awfully, including many Christian believers. But now let's think about the humiliation of Jesus, the one who was in very nature God, who didn't consider to use his rights for himself, but made himself nothing, taking on that slave status and going even to death, obeying God. How does that impact the way we use our words? We would use our words to serve other people, to encourage them, to build them up, to listen to what they're saying and respond to that, not to just our own agenda, to be very careful about how we speak of someone else because we want to serve that person. We wouldn't want to speak ill of them and hurt their name or their reputation. We wouldn't want to speak deceitfully to them and and, and con them into the wrong course of action. We wouldn't want to gossip, malign or harshly criticise. We would use our words to give life. Surely the example of Jesus here has a direct impact on the way we use our speech. There's just one example. i got one more. I saved it till last. It's the area of sexuality. Another huge thing in our culture. And one of the big problems with our culture is that it's obsessed with sex. Uh, it thinks it's had a sexual revolution in the 60s, which has actually led to great cultural misery and bad societal consequences. And we're now in a complete mess about sex as a culture. And we're all over the map. People now are defining their lives in terms of satisfying sexual experiences as though that is the be-all and end-all of human existence, which it plainly isn't. And even people who are in a a good marriage and have a a healthy sex life would tell you that sex isn't the be-all and end-all of human existence. But the culture makes out that it is. Now, how could we use our sexualities, we're all sexual beings, how could we use our sexuality to serve others, or for personal gain, for greedy rights. If we're doing the latter, then we we use our sexuality such as it is to please ourselves, to fulfill ourselves, to make ourselves feel good. And that can come out in the way that you dress. You, 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 You can dress in a way that makes people look at you with admiration, attraction, that grabs their attention, but that could lead them to thinking, sexual thoughts about you because of the way you've dressed or you can dress well and attractively but in such a way that honours the other person's eyes and doesn't lead them into that kind of temptation. One kind of way is serving self, the other one is serving the other person. Then there's sexuality itself. So the biblical pattern, the biblical teaching is that marriage, sex, it belongs within a marriage covenant between one man and one woman for life. And that in that context, sex is given as a joyful gift to enhance their union and to help uh, society and to uh, bear children. Now, in the marriage covenant itself, in, in, in a marriage relationship, people can use sex selfishly to get their own rights because they think they, they are owed it and they're, they're married now and they can demand it. Or they can use it to serve the other person. And the difference between one and the other is the difference between night and day. And is actually the key to a, a fulfilled and healthy sex life. Is this to use your sexuality within marriage to serve the other person, to bring them as much pleasure as you can, and that will make it all go as well as it can do. But for those who aren't in a marriage covenant, they are free with their much freer with their time, with their resources. They're much more flexible. They have energy. They can use their God-given sexuality, their 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 personhood to serve the community, to bless other people, to encourage the church. They've got so much more opportunity and time and and resources to do that that they too can honour God with their body by their abstinence. But the culture says, no, no, you've got to do it for yourself. You've got to fulfil yourself. How will we get the power to live that Christian sex ethic? The answer, again, is to look at Jesus, to have the same mindset who did not consider his rights something that he could grab, but laid them down, made himself nothing, became obedient to death, and then was led to exaltation. And we too will be led to glory as well, not obviously in the same way that Jesus was, but the Bible promises us that after we die, we'll we'll be given a resurrection body on the last day with Jesus, a body that will never die, and that we will be glorified with him. We'll be pure and blameless on that day we will rejoice in his presence let's pray shall we that we too may have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus let's pray gracious Lord we bow before your throne we are awestruck by these truths that we've considered briefly that you eternal son of God became incarnate took our flesh upon you, that you humbled yourself to death on a cross and that you now have been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Lord, give us this mindset. Give us this attitude, please. Melt our hearts and make them more like you for our good and for your glory. Amen.